0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2.
1: Today's scripture comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. And before we jump into today's message, I'd like to say a word of prayer. invite you to join me in that. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering together. To open your Word, to be reminded of what's true. There's so much information in our day, so many things that we're hearing all the time, so much that we're processing, and we get caught up with and kind of wrapped up in. And so I pray this morning for myself, for all of us, as we open your Word, knowing your Spirit is at work in our midst. Pray that we might be recentered regrounded in the truth, that you would bring conviction where we need it, that you bring comfort where we're discouraged, that you'd give us courage to walk in obedience and righteousness, to seek after you, to, to live out your, your will on this earth. And I pray for us more than anything that we would leave here knowing you better, seeing you more clearly, how good, gracious, and generous you are. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, uh, a friend and I, we had a chance to get out of town for about 36 hours to a lake house in Tennessee, and it's a great lake house, and while we were there, we had access to uh, this really, really nice boat, and of course, the weather was, it's like the best day of the year, it was 75, and just a cool breeze, and so... We get out on the boat about 11 a.m., sun shining, and this boat's got this awesome kind of speaker system that you connect with Bluetooth, and so we hook up Bluetooth and get on Spotify, which is amazing, you know, if you've ever used our Apple Music, like, what do you want to listen to? Because we can listen to anything that's ever been recorded. It's right here on our phones. We put on some good tunes. We're cruising on the lake, and we come up to this giant dam that people built to make the actual lake, and... It's just kind of the, the way I'm wired, where we're sitting there looking at the dam, and my mind instantly goes to how do they actually build that thing? Like, how do you build a dam? You know, because you can't just there's water going through. Like, how do they reroute the water? Do they build another dam? And then, how do you do this? So I just got my phone out, and Googled how do you build a dam. I watched a YouTube video that was about 30 seconds long. I feel like I could build one after watching that video. And then I'm like, well, how old is this dam? And, go to wikipedia it was built in 1936 and i don't know why it just kind of struck me like how old it was that that dam's origins are closer to the civil war than they are to us today and so as we're sitting there on this nice boat looking at the dam listening to music i, I just had one of these moments like humanity is amazing human beings are amazing like the to, who looked at this landscape and said, you know what, if we built a giant concrete wall here, we could have a lake? And then they went and did it. Who, who thought, like, we could shoot up satellites and they can circle the globe. We can build these towers and cell data and everything else. I mean, if you ever had that kind of a moment where you're like, humanity is pretty cool. Maybe it's, you go visit the Hoover Dam. You're like, this is an impressive feat. Or you drive across the Golden Gate Bridge or Maybe it's just you know you you see even if you're not there in person just the pictures of those man-made islands in Dubai in the shape of a palm tree where it's like let's just dump sand over and over again and eventually we're going to have an island here who thought of that it's just a plane flying overhead you think about all that humanity's done, satellites or skyscrapers or or SpaceX. Have you seen these videos of SpaceX where they land their rocket boosters vertically on barges in the ocean? If you haven't seen it, it's incredible. I mean, they've failed a lot, but now they're succeeding. You think about what we've done in science and medicine pasteurization and penicillin, laparoscopic surgery, x-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, chemotherapy, the COVID vaccine. You think about our daily lives. We have air conditioners. It's hot, not anymore. We turn a button on because humans figured out we can make it cold even when it's hot. How? I don't know, but it's amazing. Refrigerators. You think about the machines that we have that wash our dishes for us. Robots we have that vacuum our carpet or now even mow- or lawns. you think about Amazon Prime. How crazy is it that you can order an obscure hot sauce from Japan and have it on your doorstep in two or three days, even in the midst of a global pandemic? You would have told yourself that 20 or 30 years ago if you're that old, you'd never believe it. Or just think about restaurants and food. In the city tonight, you can go to a restaurant, you can order a steak from Nebraska, sea bass from the South Pacific, mussels or lobsters from the North Atlantic, truffles from New Zealand, and you can get a bottle of wine from Italy and France all on your table at the same time. And it costs you, it wouldn't be cheap, but you could do that. Humanity is amazing. And yet, we also know humanity can be pretty awful sometimes, too. Community strip mines, swaths of land, leaving it uninhabitable for generations. We've wiped out entire species just for sport. The internet, which is such an incredible thing and and opens up so many doors, it becomes a tool for sex traffickers and pornographers. We've built bombs that could destroy our world a thousand times over. And even here in our city, just a couple weeks ago, we have a shooting at a bus stop. What are we to do with humanity? How are we to think about people? Are people generally good or generally bad? So most people are good and there's a few bad apples or most people are bad and there's a few bright spots in between. And what does the Bible have to say? Human beings are complex and I would say the Bible's teaching on humanity is complex. And we want to press into that because how we think about people, how we think about humanity It drastically shapes how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people, and how we engage with the world. Now, I say all that because we're in a series that we've entitled Sacred, where we're exploring Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and a huge part of the heart behind this series is there's such core, central teaching, such foundational doctrines that Christians have held to for 2,000 years that have their roots in these two chapters. And our desire is to reclaim some of those because some of them have been lost. They've been taken for granted, assumed, neglected, or de-emphasized. And I think that's been uh, to our detriment, not to our good. And today we're looking at God's creation of humanity. We saw last week that God created the world not out of need, not out of loneliness, not out of boredom, but God created all that there is out of abundance, that our God has existed eternally as a triune God and a community of honor and glory and love, and out of the overflow of that community, creation was born. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan talked about creation and even what creation itself teaches us about God, that our God is not stingy and he is not boring and he's not one-dimensional, that, that he is a God who gives instead of giving us one tree, just pine trees everywhere, he gives thousands of trees. Instead of giving us one source of food, he gives us countless sources of food. And then today, now we're saying, okay, but, but the last day of creation, after God does all these wonderful things, That's when he creates humanity. And theologians have referred to the doctrine we're looking at today as the doctrine of the imago Dei, that we have been created in the image of God. Every human being has. And so we're going to talk about two things. What does that mean to say we're created in the image of God? What does it mean that all humanity has been created in God's image and likeness? And then number two, what are the implications? What's a big implication for us specifically as a church? How should this doctrine shape how we live in our common life in the world? But starting with the beginning, what does it mean we've been created in the image of God? If you read Genesis 1 through, you'll see that while Genesis 1, it's not quite poetry, there is a poetic kind of element to it. There's a rhythm and meter that you read and it says... You'll read multiple times that God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And it's kind of got this flow. And then you get to the last day of creation, verse 26. And we're told, and then God said, let us make. Signifying that something different's happening here than in the other days of creation. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. And we know that after creating humanity, that God, for the first time in Genesis, he declares that creation is very good. Up until then, you know, he's creating like the sun, the moon, the the water, the, the dry ground. And he's like, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he creates man and woman. And he says, now it's very good. Humanity, it's not just the final act, it's the crowning act, the apex. There is a, a weight attached to humanity because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God who creates out of the overflow of divine love. When he says, what's the most incredible thing? The crowning act of creation, he creates us. It's kind of amazing to think about. Now, theologians throughout the centuries, everyone kind of recognizes the weight, that this is really important. But there's been a lot of work because the Bible doesn't clearly spell out all of the ways that we've been created in the image and likeness of God. It's not like Genesis chapter 3. Here's the 27 ways that we've been... No, you got to kind of go in and discern. And I found three categories that I thought were pretty helpful. And it's all about how humanity is unique. Number one, we have a unique relationship with God. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. That we interact with God in a way that's unique in all of creation. We, we pray, we worship. Ecclesiastes says that we have eternity hidden in our hearts. Animals, they don't pray. Animals don't go to church. They don't worship. Animals don't think of God. But the image we're given in Genesis, we're led to assume that Adam and Eve were created. We know this to be true. They were created to know God and we're led to assume that they would actually walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And so part of what it means that God created us in his image is he was going to have a special relationship with us that's unlike anything else in creation. Another aspect of being created in the image of God is the role, the unique role that God's given us in creation. The plants and the animals, what's their job in Genesis 1? Just to be who they are, to be what they are, to fill the earth. Their job, God creates them, and he's like, there, go, live. And then he creates humanity, and he says, your job is to rule over it all, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so part of what it means to be created in the image of God is we're we are we're actually, in a sense, kind of like God. We're co-rulers with God and ruling over the earth. And we're going to talk about that more in weeks to come so I don't want to spend too much time here, but, but part of what this means, and we see this, is that as human beings, we cultivate, we bring order out of disorder, unlike anything else in creation, that we, we are kind of like God in that, that just as you know, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters when, when the earth was formless and void, so too we step in and we bring order out of disorder. I mean, could you imagine a world without humans? And if you're a raging introvert or a misanthrope, you might say, well, that sounds kind of amazing. But I mean, think about it a world without human beings. There'd be no gardens, no cities, no museums, no civilization, no culture. There'd still be some beauty, but it would be wild. And we have a unique role in creation, a unique task given to us. And then the third way, third implication of. What it means to be created in God's image is that we've been designed uniquely. In a very real sense, we're like God. There's so many connections that we could point to. But just, just as God creates, so too we create. We all have a creative side. There's no such thing as an uncreative person. It might look different for different people. We might create as we normally think of creativity, music or paintings or poetry. But you might crochet or cross stitch. You might program computers you might build homes or remodel them or decorate or landscape maybe your creative creativity has to do with food and you cook great meals or my personal creative gift is smoking meats like when you think about think about how creative that is I'm just going to go on a tangent this is probably self-indulgent but someone at some point was like hey here's a piece of meat no one's going to eat because it's too tough and then some brilliant human being said you know what if we cook it low and slow over some smoke, I bet it's going to taste amazing. And barbecue was born. Like, it's amazing to think human beings figured that out. We're creative. We create beauty. Birds, they might sing, but they don't write symphonies. You can put a, a paintbrush in an elephant's trunk, and it might slap some paint onto a canvas. But there are no Rembrandts. We're creative. We have an intellectual capacity that's unique. We have capacity for abstract thought, ideals, and hypotheticals. We have moral capacity. We have a deep sense of right and wrong that's been hardwired into us. We have laws that we agree upon and courts that adjudicate matters that we agree to live under. We, We have consciences that can nag at us that's unique among human beings you know I I have a dog he's a big dog he's a great dog he's kind of like Olaf like he likes warm hugs and belly rubs and barbecue actually as it would happen there's not an ounce of aggression in him he's great he's a great companion he never complains really about anything he's always happy to see me uh The only downside of our dog is he is so big that if he walks up to our dining room table, he can just lay his head down on the table. Like, he doesn't have to jump up at all. Just perfect height. And when we do cook barbecue, if there's ribs on the table left unattended, they will not be there for long. He will take them, and he will go eat them, and he's never apologized for it. Never once did he come back. You know, I know some of you are like, no, my dog will feel bad. We had an argument about this earlier. But no, they don't. They just feel bad if you yell at them and you scold them. They don't know why you're even yelling about them. And then they move on because they're like a goldfish in five minutes and they never think about it again. They're not laying in bed at night thinking, man, I've sinned against God and my owner. You know, have mercy on me. They're dogs. They're not moral beings. And yet we are. All of these things and more point to the reality that human beings have been created in the image of God and this is why humanity can be so awesome, so amazing, and so wonderful. God's given us capacities like he has to an extent and we can do wonderful, incredible things with those capacities. Now, As we all know, Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3. We are created in the image of God, but in Genesis 3, we see humanity is not satisfied with being in the image of God and co-ruling with God over creation. Humanity desires to become like God. And all of these tremendous capacities, they get distorted, they get misused and misdirected, they get used for wrong purposes and so in Genesis 2 we see Adam uses his creative capacity to write the first song in human history that he sings about Eve and then in Genesis 3 he uses his creative capacity to blame her for his sin. Genesis 4 Cain works the soil, Abel tends the livestock, using that that desire or that that God-given wiring to rule over the earth, they do that. And then Cain He brings an offering that's not pleasing to the Lord. Then what does he do? He deceives his brother. He uses his creativity to trick his brother. He says, let's go out into the field. I don't know, like, let's go kick the soccer ball. Abel, and they go out into the field, and then he murders him. And then God comes and asks him, and he lies. You know, animals don't lie. They don't deceive. They're not not malicious. I mean... They might kill each other for food, but that's instinct. They're not cruel, except for maybe wolverines. There's some debate in the community out there. But I'm just saying, they're not. They They don't kill really for sport. They don't kill in anger. And that's how the story goes. And so we come to this question, are people good or are they bad? people generally good or are they generally bad? And the answer is yes, both, absolutely. Now, if you've been taught, you know, not, not overtly, but maybe covertly, that the, the biblical story starts in Genesis 3, then you probably have a view of mankind, that man, mankind's bad. They're just rotten to the core. But they're not, Genesis 1 and 2. And what we actually see in Scripture is that human sinfulness... It doesn't actually override human dignity that comes because we've been created in the image of God. It doesn't erase the image of God in us. It, it might distort it, it might bend it, but if you think of a quarter, if you have a quarter and it gets dinged and scratched and the, the edges of it are worn smooth, it, that doesn't make it worth less. It's not worth 15 cents then, it's still worth 25 cents. And the witness that we see in Scripture is that even after the fall, the emphasis of this teaching that we've been created in the image of God, the emphasis is that human beings, all human beings, have an inherent dignity and worth to them, even though they're sinful. There's, there's an infinite unique, a worth you cannot measure on every human life see this probably most clearly in Genesis 9. After the fall, after the flood, God's talking to Noah, and he's instructing them on how they're going to live and live differently in the world. And he says to Noah, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now, I don't have the time or the expertise to talk about how this verse speaks into capital punishment in America in 2021. That's not my goal. What I want you to see is that when this this command was given, it was actually radically merciful and countercultural. Because in the ancient world, if a poor man were to kill a, a wealthy, powerful man, the poor man would be put to death, and likely his whole family would be put to death, or they'd be run out of town. But if a wealthy man, an influential person, were to kill a poor person, the custom was often that you could just pay a price. And so you could have wealthy, strong, influential people murdering people they didn't like, and you'd have to pay, I don't know, 100 shekels of silver. But if you can kill someone... And then the way you make restitution for taking that human being's life is to pay a hundred shekels of silver, what was their human life worth? Hundred shekels of silver. If you go to prison for three years or five years or jail or whatever, what was their life worth? Five years of your life. And what God is doing here is he is saying no. Your value's not determined by your wealth. You can't buy your way out of this. Every human being, whether they're influential or not, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're part of the cultural majority or cultural minority, (coughs) every human being has been created, God says, in my image, and they are of infinite worth. Sin doesn't change that. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not saying people are generally good or always good or trustworthy or righteous. I'm not saying that at all. I've lived too long on this earth. People can be horrible. And recognizing that people have infinite value and worth, that doesn't mean that they're always good people. I mean, I think of John 2 where it talks about the crowds coming to Jesus and they were like all in on him. They love Jesus. And John just mentions kind of off the cuff, but it's such an interesting verse. He said, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew man. And so the, the point of this teaching is not, well, like, let's just act like sin is not real or people are generally good or always good. That's not it at all. What I'm saying is even in spite of human sinfulness, human beings, all human beings have infinite worth because they've been created in the image of God. Now, this teaching, it it has shaped the moral imagination of the church and the social activism of the church since the very beginning. You know, it was just about a month ago, we talked about how the early church stood against infanticide. An abortion. And when wealthy Romans had unwanted children that they would leave to die of exposure, the garbage dumps, the early Christians would go and rescue them, adopt them, and raise them as their own. Why would they do that? It wasn't just to make converts. It was because the early church, they knew, they saw those babies that the parents didn't want. They saw them and they said they have been created in the image of God. And they have so much worth. They're not to be discarded in a garbage dump like a piece of trash. And so even if it's changing the rest of our life because we are taking this unwanted child and we're going to raise them as our own and it's going to cost us money and time and energy and sleep, we're going to do it because of how valuable this human being is. And that's why for 2,000 years, the church has stood against things like abortion and infanticide. It's not just a a political chip that we fight over. It's us saying all human beings created in the image of God. It's why Christians were the ones who invented and established the first hospitals. Did you know that? It was was Christians who did that. And, And they didn't check your church membership card before they allowed you in. It wasn't, are you, okay, let me see, where do you attend are you Baptist? Pres- we'll, we'll take anyone, you know, as long as you're not Catholic. No, they just said, you're sick and you're hurting? C- come on. We can help you? Come on. Why? Because all human beings are created in the image of God and they have infinite value and worth. There's an obligation there. Or take something like human rights, universal human rights, that all human beings have inalienable rights Where did that idea come from? You might say, well, hasn't it always been around? No, it hasn't always been around. Most of human history didn't believe that at all. Aristotle, you know, one of the smartest people there was back in the day, he said, actually, some people are born to be slaves. You can just look at them and you know, that's just their lot in life. You know where the idea that all human beings were worthy of rights and had rights It was Christians in the Middle Ages who took this doctrine seriously. said, okay, what does, if all human beings are created in the image of God, and they have infinite worth, how does that play out in our common life? Well, that means that all human beings have certain rights that are owed to them. Now, this wasn't always popular, you know. Centuries later, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, he actually ridicules Christians for this. He says, another Christian concept, I think this is in The Will Power, another Christian concept, no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. The concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. mankind was first taught to stammer the proposition of equality in religious context so maybe you can talk about that in the church but in the real world but then he goes on and only later was it made into morality no wonder that man ended up ended by taking it seriously and taking it practically and he goes on to ridicule democracy so where does the idea of democracy come from This teaching of the image of God is what drove people like Wilberforce and others to bring an end to the African slave trade. It's why Christians today are on the front lines caring for refugees, fighting against sex trafficking and pornography. It's because all human beings, regardless of their story or their ethnicity, their background, their wealth, their connections, their abilities or their disabilities, their age, their gender, their sexuality, their sexual orientation, their religion, their devotion. All human beings have been created in the image of God. They have infinite worth. So, what does this mean for us? And when I say us, I mean us as a church. What does this mean for our life in the world? Well, I think it means we have, we need to see the obligation we have to our fellow man. And that obligation extends beyond just evangelism, includes evangelism, but extends beyond it. I think a story might help. When I was a young Christian, Well, I came to faith about the age of 15, and when I became a Christian, I didn't like wade in. I wasn't kind of torn of like, I love the world. I mean, I was in a sense, but I was like, Jesus, I'm all in, WWJD, I'd go to the Berean Christian bookstore and buy CDs of musicians I'd never heard of because I wanted to listen to good Christian music. And it only took about six months before I became a raging Pharisee, like in my school started looking down my nose on people who weren't Christians and, you know, all the the party crowd. That was the people that we like to look down upon. And luckily I had some older, wiser Christian mentors who spoke into my life and said, you actually shouldn't look down your nose at them. You should love them. You share the gospel with them. It's kind of a mind-blowing thing like, oh, you're right. And maybe if they experience your kindness, love, openness, welcoming presence they might begin to ask questions of who Jesus is what he's done and why it all matters and that was kind of our evangelism strategy in high school and it was a beautiful strategy and god honored it in so many ways and so many lives were changed through that and i still am in touch with some of those people to this day it's wonderful it's great but one of the like takeaways uh, unspoken takeaways that I I learned from that was basically like we, we as Christians are to love people in hopes that they come to faith in Jesus. And that's certainly true. It's certainly true. But our obligation to our fellow man is not contingent upon their prospect of becoming a Christian. We can't just say, well, if they reject the gospel or we don't see any way forward, then we don't have any obligation to them anymore. Our duty to other people is bound up in the reality that they were created in the image of God. And I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not, I want to see everyone enter into a life-changing relationship with God. But our duty doesn't end with evangelism. There's an obligation of how we see people and treat people that extends beyond it and extends beyond what they believe or they don't believe. This this is wrapped up in the very essence of what, what the gospel is. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is not that Jesus just came to save us from hell. It is that, but it's so much more. What did Jesus say when he came to the earth? How did he begin his ministry? Repent. Don't go to hell. No, what did he say? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign and rule of God is here with me. All that has been distorted and broken through the fall, I am coming to undo that distortion, that brokenness, and I'm coming to show you and model the way of what life under God's rule, and reign is. And if God created everyone in his image and said, all people have worth and value, that means we need to treat them like that. And what did we see Jesus do? Exactly that. He's the image of the invisible God. And when he came to earth, what did he do? Who did he hang out with? Man, everybody, right? Right? hung out with the poor, hung out with prostitutes, hung out with the powerful, hung out with the religious elites and the self-righteous. He actually made concerted efforts and went out of his way to care for the people that everyone else had been, everyone else had kind of written out of the human society and the human story. People with disabilities or diseases, leprosy or people who were demon-possessed. And Jesus stepped in and healed them. And he set them free, and he loved them. He didn't disregard people because of their weaknesses or their religious heritage. Jesus moved towards humanity. Reminds me of Jonah, the book of Jonah. If you've never read Jonah, God says, Jonah, I want you to go and Preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah, you know, bolts in the other direction, and there's this whole thing, the fish, all of that, and then you get to chapter 3. He preaches to the Ninevites, and they turn. They were a wicked people, and they turn to God, and then Jonah gets really mad at the beginning of chapter 4, like, I knew this is what would happen. You're always so merciful and compassionate. I knew you'd forgive them, and they're horrible people, and there's this thing with a plant, and then at the very end, God says, like, do you do you have a reason to really be mad with me, Jonah? And it's this wonderful picture of God's heart. He said, should I not be concerned about that great city, Nineveh, which is like Vegas, right? That great city. And he says, there, there's 120,000 people there and many cattle. I love that line. There's 120 souls there, people created in my image and, and cattle that I created. It actually shows God's heart that he actually loves the world he created, too, and he's concerned with it. And so I wonder what that would mean for us if we started to see this isn't a call away from evangelism or to de-emphasize sharing the gospel with the world. It's actually a call to live more robustly, more fully into the kingdom of God and to see the world with the eyes that Jesus, through the eyes of Jesus. Because when you begin to see people for who they truly are, they're sinful, they're broken, they're fallen, yes, but at the very bottom, people created in the image of God, it it changes you. It changes how you approach the world. It, It changes how you think about people and talk about people. It becomes a basis for loving people. Like what's the basis for human love, for the great commandment to love our neighbor? Why are we called to love our neighbors? What's the motivation in the Good Samaritan, parable of the Good Samaritan? It's not that at the end the, the gospel gets shared with him, which would be great if it was, but that's not, it's, it's, you cared, you treated him, you loved him as your neighbor. John Calvin, if you're familiar with him, he was a brilliant theologian, but he's pretty buttoned up, pretty stern guy. He's not someone that I think would be warm or fun at parties necessarily, but he's brilliant. He actually, he went to this doctrine and he wrote this, and I found it so fascinating. He talks about how this reality should shape how we interact and engage with the world. He says this, "'The Lord instructs us to to do good to all people throughout the entire world,' many of whom are unworthy of such good if judged by their own merit. If you were to look at them, you will say, they are not worth my time. Calvin says, but Scripture comes to our rescue with the best of reasons for doing good to all people. It teaches us not to regard others according to their own merits, but to consider in them the image of God to which we owe both honor and love. So he's saying this changes how you think of the world and you see the world and you see people. And then he continues in this very Calvinist, Calvinistic way, like with his typical charm. He says, suppose that person is contemptible and worthless. The Lord, however, shows him to be one whom he has condescended, who God has decided to decorate with his own image. Supposing a man not only deserves nothing good from you, but he has also provoked you with injustices and injuries. Even this is not a cause for you to stop embracing him with affection and fulfilling your duties of love to him. I love how he ends it. We must be sure not to dwell on the wickedness of men, but rather to consider the image of God in them that image concealing and obliterating their shortcomings entices us by its beauty and dignity to love and welcome them. So bringing this to a close, how would your life be different if that's how you saw human beings? You really like you just had those moments, you know, like that moment of mine on the lake, like humanity is amazing. If you more regularly had these moments where you're interacting with another human being, in the image of, this person's amazing. And they can be annoying and, you know, but they're amazing. Like how would it, I think we can go big, like how would this shape our politics? We talked about abortion. Certainly shape how we think about people who are really hurting and suffering and I'm not telling you to shape who you vote for necessarily, but it should, should influence how we think about social policy, I think. But a lot of times that's where we stop with it. We stop up there and like we, we vote like once a year maybe. Best. What would it look like to actually bring this teaching into our lives, like our everyday lives, into our relationships? In James 3, James says we shouldn't curse people with with our words because people have been created in the image of God. I wonder how it would shape our our speech and how we talk about people, people we know or maybe, you know, national figures, the words we use to describe them. Or maybe this would be a good exercise. Think of the most difficult person for you in life or the most difficult people. The people that, you know, when you see them, you're like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do here. I would rather not interact with them at this moment. How might this teaching change your view of them? Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's people you've kind of dismissed. Maybe it's forgiveness that you need to extend. I just—I wonder what the Lord might be inviting you to. I could give you so many more illustrations or applications. I don't want to. I want you to just sit with that. What if every human being was created in the image of God and they have infinite worth? How would that change your relationships? Because they were, they are, and it should. As you think about that, we move to the Lord's table, and we are reminded of God's heart for us. We're reminded that our God is a God who takes sin very seriously, so seriously that he sent his son, offered his body to be broken and his blood to be shed on our account. But we also learn from this table that God did not leave us and define us solely by our sin. He chose to rescue us and redeem us, and he's invited us into a kingdom that is filled with rescue and redemption and healing and hope and grace and mercy and compassion. So as we come to the table, maybe, maybe more than anything, you just need to be reminded that Jesus died for you and your sins, even the sins you committed yesterday or this past week. But maybe there's an invitation for you here too, Christian. An invitation to be reminded that God so loved the world that he sent his son and that God is committed to redeeming the world and to reconciling the world in Christ. And Maybe that needs to work itself out in the ordinary moments of your day. If you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. We have the little cups because of COVID. There's, they're out in the hall. We brought some into the auditorium. If you forgot to grab one, you can go grab one and take part. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal. But instead, you take part in God who created you in love and who sent his son to die for you. And it was calling you to repentance and to love and to trust and to follow him. Let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.